Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Let me hang up the guitar. I'll be right back with you. Alrighty, uh, you should be at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 and as you can see today we'll be looking at the A part of Ephesians 2.14 uh, which teaches us that, the, that Jesus Christ personifies the, uh, the peace that now exists between uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians and this will constitute our 100th, 109th hour in Ephesians and uh, just a, uh, with this passage Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 we'll be in it, we have three classes with it, we have Thursday, uh, this Thursday will be on the the B part, which talks about how Jesus Christ personifies the peace between Jewish and Gentile Christians and caused both groups to be one. And then we'll also look at uh, the whole verse in, 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 in its totality, which teaches us that Jesus Christ destroyed the hostility between Jews and Gentiles caused by the Mosaic Law. That'll 
be on Saturday, which leads me to uh, uh, an announcement. We are, we, we are, our, our annual Christmas break is coming up. So uh, we'll be, it's on our website. <clears throat> you can see that it uh, we'll be looking at uh, the last class before the Christmas break is going to be uh, December, this Saturday, December 9th. And then, then we have, a, we won't resume classes till uh, Tuesday, January 9th. So Saturday, January 9th is our last uh, class before the Christmas break, and we resume classes Tuesday, January 9th, Lord willing. And so um, that's what uh, the, the, the upcoming class schedule is. And um, if you want to know why I'm sounding like Rod Stewart, uh, I, have, I came down with a cold uh, yesterday and everything, so it didn't bother me singing that song, So, which I was kind of amazed. But anyway, so, uh, so pardon my voice for sounding so deep. I kind of like it, you know, it's kind of... Kind of like Barry Whiteish, remember Barry White? Oh, baby. <laughs> anyway, so uh, let's uh, take a moment of silent prayer. Let's, as, before we uh, get underway, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God. It because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to First John one nine, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us another day to study your word. We thank you for the grace, the faith, the salvation, your work in our behalf in eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the Cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. Father, I pray that the Spirit would do a mighty work through all of us, myself and the audience. I pray, Father, that uh, there'll be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. I thank you for that. Protect those things. And the streaming video by YouTube, we thank you for the service that they provide. We pray that it would function properly. Thank you for the people who are taking advantage of it. I also pray that you would, uh, your word says, when we're weak, we're strong. Your power is manifested in our human weakness. So uh, help me to uh, to uh, speak here this morning and deliver the message with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. Being sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. I pray the same for the audience. Help them to work mightily and powerfully through them by the Spirit. Help them to learn, understand, and apply what's being taught to concentrate. And please break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening. So uh, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read from the Net Bible, uh, the entire chapter, and then we're going to look at my translation of those of the same verses, the same chapter. And then we're going to look begin to look at Ephesians chapter uh, four, uh, 2.14. And uh, this will be the first of three hours, as I said before the opening prayer, that we'll be spending in Ephesians 2.14. And what determines how long I stay in a verse or a paragraph or whatever it is or a chapter is is dependent on the content. So with that in mind, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Again, I'm reading from the Net Bible. It says, And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly lived, according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you were saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus, for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that is performed in the body by human hands, that you are at that time, without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
for he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by which hostility has been killed. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now let's look at my translation of this, exa- uh, this same chapter. It says in verse 1, Now correspondingly, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority, ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere. Specifically, the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, among whom each one of us also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves uh, Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though all of us without exception were spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, He caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit is saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each of us as a corporate unit in the Christian community to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. He did this. He did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come the incomparable wealth which is the product of His grace, because of kindness, for the benefit of each one of us, because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of us as a corporate unit are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It does not originate from the meritorious actions as a source so that a person cannot for their own benefit enter into the state of boasting. For each one of us are his creative workmanship. For every one of us has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Therefore, all of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision by those who receive the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands. All of you, without exception, used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. All of you, without exception, used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. All of you, without exception, used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, all of you, without exception, used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. However, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, all of you, as a corporate unit, without exception, who formerly were far away, have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, Namely, by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused hostility between the two races and the two races with God. In other words, by nullifying 
by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity, by means of faith in himself at justification, and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus, he caused peace to be established between the two and the two with God. Verse 16, he goes on to say, Paul says, explaining himself in the previous verse, in other words, that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God the Father through through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility between the two races and the two races with God. By means of faith in himself at justification, and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Correspondingly, he, as a result, came proclaiming peace for the benefit of all of you, namely, those who were far off, likewise peace to those who were near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, all of us, without exception, as a corporate unit, namely, both groups are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one Spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather all of you, without exception, are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household, because each one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to all of you, without exception, by the apostles as well as the prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union and identification with him. The whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. This is a monumental passage and a tremendous piece of literature in the ancient world and it changed the world. And we're still feeling the effects of it and we will continue to see the effects of it and it'll meet its ultimate design is the millennial reign of Christ. So we see here that Paul is presenting to us the importance of uh, justification by faith and union and identification with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit, which takes place at justification. Meaning, when uh, Christ was crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated at the right hand of the Father, the Father looks at us, church-age believers, as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with the Son. Why? Because we're now under the headship of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. We used to be under the headship of the first Adam, which was a place of cursing. What God is trying to do here is He's trying to establish humanity back to its rightful place which he had designed it, which is to rule over the works of his hands. It says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that God created Adam and Eve so that they might rule over the works of his hands. That's one of the ways we reflect the image of God. And the fall took place in Genesis 3 as recorded there by uh, Moses. And what we see here is that Satan at that time usurped the authority of Adam and Eve over the earth. And we know that because Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that Satan is the god of this world, temporarily, of course. And also, uh, we see that he is, by John, in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world is under his power. And then Revelation 12 says that he deceives the entire world. Also, Satan offered the kingdoms of this world to Jesus Christ during his first advent, which, of course, we know, the Lord emphatically rejected that. And But that wouldn't be a legitimate temptation if Satan didn't have this authority over the earth. So, through the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of Jesus Christ. He not only delivered and, uh, the human race through, from eternal condemnation with those events in his life, condemnation from the law, uh, enslavement to sin and Satan in his cosmic system, personal sins, spiritual and physical death. He not only delivered us from all those things, and we appropriate that great deliverance through faith in Jesus Christ, but he also destroyed the works of the devil. So, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father was the first step of God and God the Father putting humanity as the ruler over this earth and thus dispossessing Satan and the fallen angels. And uh, that will take place ultimately at the second advent of Christ, which ends Daniel's 70th week and the times of the Gentiles. And that ushers in the millennial reign, right? 
So, every time, from the day on the day of Pentecost, in June of 33 AD, when the baptism of the Spirit took place, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, who were declared justified by the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, received the, the gift of the Spirit. That's according to the New Covenant promises. They also received the forgiveness of sins as well through faith in Jesus. And what we see there is that, that uh, it's all part of the New Covenant. We see the Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, were the first people to experience the baptism of the Spirit, which placed them in union with Christ and identified them with Christ. Then we saw something phenomenal that Paul's discussing here in chapter 2. We see that, that, in cha- that uh, what we see is Gentile believers. In Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, the Roman centurion and his family, believed in Jesus, and they too, to the surprise of the Jewish believers like Peter, they were placed in, they received the baptism of the Spirit as well, just like Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They're now in union with Christ as well. So something significant took place. But prior to that, as reflected in Peter's refusal, despite the visions he received from God in Acts chapter 10, to go into a Gentile's house, he wouldn't do it. And the Jews didn't do that. Um, one reason was because they couldn't eat with Gentiles because of the dietary regulations. Well, Jesus put those away in Mac chapter 7. Those dietary regulations were no longer in effect. And we see that uh, uh, you can eat all foods. And the people who have that conviction are called the strong in faith in Matthew, uh, Romans chapter 14. And the weak in faith in that passage are those believers, whether they're Jew or Gentile, primarily, primarily Jewish there because they were under the dietary logs uh, prior to their justification. They were the ones that didn't have that conviction that they could eat all foods. So that's one of the reasons why, and we'll develop this, why the law was a, a form of hostility between the two races, and they had no interaction, interaction with each other. They would not go into each other's homes. So what happened on the day of Pentecost in June of 33 AD, and then when it happened with the Gentiles, the baptism of the Spirit, when it happened with them, this was the start of creating a new humanity. In fact, a bride for Jesus Christ. You know, Adam had Eve, and Jesus Christ, the last Adam, will have us, the church. We're the bride of Christ. Paul makes that clear in this book, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23, to the end of that chapter. So you and I are, as Gentile believers, who weren't in a covenant relationship with God, like the Jews were. With the, you know, the Jews received the covenants. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 9, 4 through 5, and, and also Romans 3 talks about the privileges that the Jews received, the, the scriptures, um, the tabernacle worship, the, the unconditional promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Jeremiah, um, and also the tabernacle worship, and the Messiah would be a Jew, okay? Salvation is of the Jews. So the Gentiles, no Gentile nation on the face of the earth had that kind of covenant relationship with God. So if you remember in Paul, and those who studied Romans with me years ago, Romans 11 Paul says the wild olive branch, the Gentiles, have been engrafted into the, the olive tree. That's, a, that's a, a metaphor for Jews, regenerate Jews. In that passage, the, the branches that are not on that olive tree are unregenerate Jews. They believe in Jesus, they're back on the tree. The, the Gentiles were the wild olive branches, okay? So against contrary to nature, we were engrafted into an olive tree. That's against nature. That's talking about the supernatural nature of this union between Jewish and Gentile believers. And it, it accentuates the grace of God and the omnipotence of God, the wisdom of God. So you and I, though we didn't get the prom, the, unconditional, the, the four unconditional covenants to Israel, the Jews did, Israel, we Gentile believers are benefiting, benefit, benefit, uh, being benefited from being in union with Christ and united with Jewish believers through the baptism of the Spirit and our justification, we're benefiting from those covenants, like the new covenant, the gift of the Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. And we'll also benefit from the Davidic covenant and uh, the uh, the Abrahamic covenant and the land covenant because Jesus is going to rule over this earth for a thousand years and the entire Middle East from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea up into Turkey in the north and down in northern Africa in the south, that all that land is the Jews. They're going to fight over it today, but that's going to be coming to an end someday. And the Jews, with their bride, their king, and, their, and the bride of Christ, Jesus, composed of Jewish and Gentile believers, is going to reign over this earth. During the, and that will be established at the second advent of Christ. 
So you and I are in a privileged group of people, and this should define how we look at ourselves and other believers. Uh, we should define ourselves because of we're loved by God, we're created in the image of God, and we're in union with Christ. God looks at us as he looks at his son. Crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with him. You are over, more than conquerors. You're overwhelmingly conquerors. And so that means you're conquerors over sin and Satan as cosmic system. You already, you and I already have the victory. It's a question of whether we will appropriate by faith our, the, the, the great deliverance and the great power that has been demonstrated on our behalf. Will we appropriate it by faith and consider ourselves dead to the sin nature, the cosmic system Satan, and alive to God as Paul taught in Romans 6, 11, and 12, and Colossians 3, 1 through 5. So you and I are, are kings. We are, we, you know, we're, we're, we're rulers of this earth. Eventually, we're going to judge angels, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3. And Paul said that to a group of Christians and great, and weren't the, the, the spiritually mature individuals. Okay, they were not at all. So you and I need to look at ourselves and our situations and our circumstances and put them in perspective. I have to constantly do that with myself. You know, we're going to go through many trials and tribulations in this earth. Paul said this in Acts, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Momentary light affliction is going to produce in us an eternal weight of glory. You know, Paul's ambition in Philippians 3, 10 and 11 was to know Christ experientially. How? By experiencing undeserved suffering, which would enable him to experience the death of identification with Christ and his death and resurrection. To do that, then you'll be able to experience the power of his resurrection. And when he talks about attaining to the resurrection, he's not talking about the rapture. Because the word attain there in Philippians 3.11 is in the active voice. That means the subject performs the action of the verb of attaining to the resurrection. Well, the rapture, only God's volition, Jesus Christ's volition, who's God, is involved. It's, so this is not in a passive voice, it's an active voice. Meaning, to, in order to experience the power of Christ's resurrection in our lives, you know, when we're weak, we're strong. We must, we must experience our identification with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial. Resurrection will then come. So that means, you know, we go through situations and you say, you know, I'm living, I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm keeping short accounts with God. I'm confessing my sins. I'm, I'm serving. I'm giving. I'm a good steward with my time, talent, and treasure. I'm persevering. I'm not quitting like many of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are doing. And why am I having these troubles in my life? Well, because you're a threat to the kingdom of darkness and also, more importantly really, is that God's trying to conform you to the image of his son and he sees you moving good, he's going to keep it going. So uh, don't be discouraged as you go through trials and tribulations. Just go to him in prayer. Help him to help, ask him to help you uh, to, uh, to uh, persevere. Also assemble with other believers if possible. Some people don't have that uh, ability. So whatever way you can get fellowship with other believers to, that will encourage you to go forward in God's plan, that you should do. And if you don't have that somebody face-to-face -face with you like that and you're in a difficult situation, remember what Hebrews 12 used to say, you know, I consider him who suffered such abuse from sinners, uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. He, your king, your bridegroom, your greatest lover has uh, gone through much more than, than you and I have ever gone through. He was abandoned by the Father so that you and I would not be abandoned for all of eternity. He suffered the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't. Now that we're his children, is he going to freely give us all things? Romans 8.32. So you and I, are, are in a, we're, we could be invisible heroes with an invisible impact in our homes, our neighborhoods, our country, uh, internationally and in the angelic conflict with Satan. You could be a witness for the prosecution in the rebuttal phase of Satan's appeal trial and we're in the rebuttal phase, human history. So this is what we have, people. And this is what Paul is trying to describe for the church, the Gentile Christians, how blessed they are. The whole passage is about accentuating the grace and love of God. He talks about their pre-justification state in verses 1 through 3. And he does so again in verses 11 and 12. Why? To accentuate the great love at, which manifested itself in God bestowing upon us unmerited blessings because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, these unmerited blessings 
are flow from God's attribute of love, the function of his attribute of love. So you're loved. You and I are loved. And do not get too caught up on this world. One day, we'll be out of here. And the rapture could happen now. You're, you could die today. Uh, and then you're absent from the body face to face with the Lord and he'll wipe away every tear from your eyes. Okay? So hang in there. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Begin to look at it today. Ephesians 2, 14. It contains three assertions. The first in the Greek text is autos estin he arene hemon, which I translate, he personifies our peace. Then we have uh, we have another assertion, which is ha poesas ta amfrotera en, hen, excuse me. That's translated by myself, namely, by causing both groups to be one. And then lastly, the third assertion is kai ta mesetoiken, Two, fragumu, fragmu, excuse me, lusas, tain, ekran. I translate that specifically by destroying the wall, which served as the barrier, that is which is caused hostility. So, in the Net Bible, you see verse uh, 14, for he is our peace. There's the first assertion. The second one, the one who made both groups into one. And the final assertion in the verse, and who destroyed the middle wall of petition, the hostility. So, therefore, you and I can see that the first of these assertions is a declarative statement which presents the reason for the first assertion in verse 13. It states that Jesus Christ personifies the peace which now exists between Paul and his fellow Jewish Christians and the recipients of this letter who are Gentile Christians. The second assertion explains how or the means by which Jesus Christ himself personifies the peace that now exists between these two races, these Jewish and Gentile Christians. And he states in this second assertion that he did this, the Lord did this by causing both groups to be one. And the third and final assertion also explains not only the first assertion, but it's also explaining the second. And thus it explains not only how or by what means Jesus Christ personifies the peace that now exists between Jewish and Gentile Christians, but also how or by what means he caused both groups to be one single entity. Now, before we go further, one of the things that's absolutely astounding to me, and uh, it just shows Satan's influence on the church. You know, in our country, we have, like in all countries, there's race problems, okay? So let's just take the problems between black and white in our country. You know, we they, there was a people... From Africa, we kidnapped, basically, from Africa. And uh, so here they are, enslaved. And then, you know, Lincoln does his freeing the slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation. But really, they really truly weren't free until the 1960s when Martin Luther King had to go and, and uh, with many others and uh, to, uh, to basically apply the Constitution correctly and to see that there is freedom for these people. The same ability to you know, vote without being harassed or threatened and to, you know, eat where they, wherever that public places and not be excluded, you know, that, 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 all that stuff and look at all the violence that took place. Look at the civil war, the bloodshed, the greatest bloodshed ever spilled by our, um, our soldiers was the civil war people, not World War II and, uh, and World War One, And also look at this, look at the, all the violence and the political turmoil and the assassinations of the 1960s. You know, I was a little boy, but I remember that stuff, you know. And uh, so uh, so here we are, and all this violence, and, we, and trying to get um, uh, is e- racial equality. Do you know that if the gospel was preached and during the Civil War and by everybody, North and South, and here in the South, in, in, in America, do you realize that we could have got away with, we could have got rid of slavery and with all these problems with race if we were just teaching people the gospel. Remember, the Roman Empire was absolutely, their whole economy was run by slave labor. By some estimates, there was 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And basically from their wars, a lot of times it was for indentured servants, pay off debt. But most of it was the wars they fought, the Punic Wars and whatnot. So there comes the Christian community 
and you read the epistles like Ephesians and, and, and also Colossians, where Paul tells slave masters to treat their slaves well and also slaves to obey their masters in all things as under the Lord. What happened? Within two centuries, slavery was gone from the Roman Empire. They didn't have to fight a war. They didn't have to kill anybody. Peacefully, it was done and because the gospel changed the hearts of people. So I, I lay the blame of all the bloodshed at the foot of the pastors in, our, in the church in America for not teaching what Paul's teaching here. There were many that did, but they were, they were shut out. We, we could have had, we could have had, so right now, uh, when I talk to people about race relations and they're Christians, I always remember this, tell them to, I always talk about this passage with them. And how Christianity uh, became, uh, took care because we were, uh, the gospel resolved the problems of race. The gospel solves everything. The gospel is about Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, right here in the Father, right? And all the implications of that. And one of those implications is there's peace between the races. Paul's saying the Jew and Gentile Christians are united with each other part of the new humanity. So I'm a Gentile. I'm white. I have a black brother, a sister, and she's a believer, African-American, black, Christian. We're brothers and sisters. And so we're united. What the, bat, what the, what the human race has been trying to do and our country has been trying to do with race problems around the world is resolved through faith in Jesus Christ and the baptism of the Spirit because God was able to unite the two races in a way that no social program or no law could ever do because the gospel changes the hearts of people. If only people in the church believed in the gospel. People, I see pastors walking away from the ministry. I can't believe it. Why? Because they don't really believe in the gospel. They're ashamed of the gospel. Can't make a lot of money, you know, and there's too much suffering, you know. That's why we're losing all these guys many times is because of this stuff. And, you know, we're supposed to suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. But and that's the, now that we have a crisis now in our country, do you know that when they were looking for a pastor over here at Doctrine Bible Church, where I am the pastor of down here in Huntsville, do you know that they were looking, they, there was nobody they could find in the pipeline, they called it, who, who could uh, fill the pulpit. There was nobody. They were asking around. There was nobody. And then they, they remembered, it, you know, a mutual friend of ours told them about me. It's like, isn't that sad? There are many other guys out there that could do it. But they're becoming few and far between. And they don't believe in the gospel. Many people are leaving the ministry. Guys are leaving the ministry at an epidemic. And it's, gonna, it's hurting the Christian church. So we're, we're devoid of leadership in many parts of our country. And so uh, do we believe in the gospel? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, are we ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel will change everything. Gospel, is just, gospel solves all of our, can solve all of our economic, social problems, race problems, problems between the male and female, uh, the promise uh, problems everywhere. The problems is uh, war. The gospel can solve it all. If only we will believe in the subject of the gospel, Jesus Christ, and appropriate by faith that victory that we have as Christians over sin and Satan as cosmic system. All of the problems that we have in this country can be directly attributed to sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. That's the problem of the human race. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And so now we've been delivered from those enslavements. And now we have life and we're free. We're truly free. You know, we're free. The slaves in Rome, Christian slaves, were free because of their faith in Jesus. They were not They were freed from the biggest problem, sin, sin Satan's cosmic system. They're free. You, were, you and I are free. Prior to our justification, we were slaves to the devil and his world system and Satan. But the gospel and our exercising faith in the gospel gave us that freedom that everybody's looking for, really. 
Um, people want to do their own thing and call that freedom, which is really just living in sin, being a slave to sin and Satan. So think about these things. And if you're a pastor or an evangelist, think about what a great, great privilege you and I have been given to communicate the word of God to God's people who he purchased with his blood, son of his, his, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ at Calvary. How can you walk away from that? How can you walk away from that? And but why, why is it, don't you know how, what a great privilege this is? And there's great reward waiting. You're representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Don't fall in love with the world. First John 2, 15 through 17. Don't fall in love with the world. And the world is very persuasive. Satan's world system. And many are fallen by the wayside. And if you're a pastor or an evangelist or a Christian and you're wavering, don't give in. Keep going. Look at the big picture. Don't just take with, right, you know, sin has a little bit of fun, but in the end it brings death, right? As the writer of Hebrews said. So the first assertion in Ephesians 2.14, which I pointed out to you, in the Greek text is autos gar, Aston, hey, arene, hey, mon. I translate, he himself personifies our peace. Uh, all the modern tra translations pretty much, they translate it the same way. Uh, let's see, I'll just blow this, uh, my comparative uh, of the different translations. Let me just get this up here for you, blow it up. So the Net Bible says, he, for he is our peace. They translate that uh, declarative statement, causal clause. Uh, ESV, for he himself is our peace. Uh, the NIV, for he himself is our peace. Uh, the NRSV, for he is our peace. The Lexham Bible, for, Bible says, for he himself is our peace. The Good News, Good News Bible uh, for, uh, says, for Christ himself has brought us peace. Uh, the New English Bible, uh, it says, uh, when did they put it? Oh, they don't even have peace there. That's interesting that they don't even do that. Okay, New Living Translation, for Christ himself has brought, a, brought, us, brought peace to us. So, we see that in this first statement, Paul's asserting in this verse that because of their faith in him at justification, faith in Jesus, and their union identification with him, the recipients of this epistle, who he identifies in Ephesians 2.11 as Gentile Christians, were formerly far away from God and his covenant people, Israel. But now they've been brought near to both, to both of them, God and the Jews, by means of the blood of Christ. So therefore... A comparison of this assertion in verse 13 with the one in verse 14, the first one, indicates that these Gentile Christians have been brought near to God and his covenant people Israel by means of the blood of Christ because Jesus Christ himself personifies their peace. Now, it's interesting. The word autos, uh, the intensive personal pronouns in the nominative case, it emphasizes that the person of Jesus Christ personifies or is the embodiment of the peace that now exists between Gentile Christians and God and his covenant people Israel, in particular regenerate Jews. Now the verb ami, which I translate personifies, translated in your modern translations is, and that's fine to do so, but I'm, my, my translation again, is, as I pointed out many times, is more uh, explanatory. So this verb ami, it expresses the idea that Jesus, Jesus Christ himself personifies the peace that exists between Jewish and Gentile Christians in relation to God. In other words, he himself is the embodiment, quote-unquote, of this peace, or we could say he himself is this peace incarnate. And I'm going to go explain to you uh, shortly as to in what ways that he personifies the peace, that it now exists between Jew and Gentile Christians and these two Jewish and Gentile Christians with God. Now, the word for peace Great word, Irene, it's in the articular form. It not only speaks of the peace that between Jewish and Gentile Christians, but also by way of implication. It pertains to the peace that exists between both groups and God. How do we know this? Well, it's indicated by the fact that Gentile Christians could never be reconciled to Jewish Christians until both groups are first reconciled to God through faith in His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. This is also indicated by the contents of Ephesians 2.16, which asserts that uh, Jesus Christ reconciled both groups into one new humanity to God through his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Jesus Christ personifies this peace that now exists between Jewish and Gentile Christians in relation to God 
for four reasons. So as promised, here are the reasons why, how he personifies these peace, this peace between Jewish and Gentile Christians and these Jewish and Gentile Christians with God. First, he's the author of peace because Ephesians 2.14 asserts that he caused both Jewish and Gentile Christians to be one group. Secondly, his substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths on the cross, which constitute him suffering the Father's wrath, are the basis for this peace that now exists between Jewish and Gentile Christians. So the Lord's suffering, the wrath of God in our place at Calvary, propitiated the Father and thus reconciled sinful humanity to a holy God. And this interpretation is indicated by the contents of Ephesians 2, 13 and 16. The former, verse 13, asserts that Gentile Christians have been brought near to God and His covenant people, Israel, by means of the blood of Christ. And as we pointed out in previous classes, that the blood of Christ is a representative analogy that speaks of Christ suffering the wrath of God by suffering a spiritual and physical death on the cross. The latter, verse 16, asserts that Jesus Christ reconciled both Jewish and Gentile Christians to God through His cross, which again speaks of Him suffering the wrath of God by suffering a spiritual and physical death on the cross. Thirdly, Jesus Christ personifies the peace that now exists between Jewish and Gentile Christians in relation to God because he's the medium of this peace. How do we know that? That's indicated by the contents of verse 18, which asserts that it is through Jesus that both Jew and Gentile Christians have access to the Father by the Spirit. And then lastly, Ephesians 2.17 asserts that Jesus Christ is the proclaimer of this peace to those who are near to God, the Jews, and those who are far away from Him. So look at Ephesians 2.14 again. So Paul says in the first statement in verse 14, for he, Jesus Christ, is our peace. Now it's interesting, the word our, it's the, uh, the personal pronoun ego, which is uh, translated correctly, our. It's, it's, it's uh, the referent of this word is twofold. First, it's uh, the recipients of this epistle who Paul identifies as Gentile Christians in Ephesians 2.11. Number two, it refers to Paul, who is of course a Jewish Christian. Now, Paul, and he does this throughout this letter up to this point, he's using himself as a representative of the Jewish Christians. And so therefore, when he uses our or we in the first two chapters, he's expressing his solidarity with the Jewish Christians, uh, Gentile Christians, as a representative of the Jewish Christians. Okay, so Paul, he employs himself to represent the Jewish Christian community. Thus, this peace belongs to both the Gentile and Jewish Christian communities. In other words, this peace is the possession of both groups. And I'll close with this. The peace, every person on the face of the earth is looking for peace. Peace of mind, you know, peace in their soul. They got guilt, they got fear, they want peace. Americans are crave peace as individuals. We also crave peace as a country. All the people around the world really crave peace. They really want that. They think by, can, by fighting wars that that can really truly give them peace. But it, that peace is always temporary, isn't it? As by bearing witness to all the wars we've had. So our people, the United States, we've been at wars so the, so the whole 20th century. We fight all around the globe and we're just like the Roman Empire. But we're not, we're not, a, we're, we, our country wants peace. The world wants peace. You can't get it without Jesus Christ. Your peace for the soul is through faith in Jesus. And then you have the guilt of sin wiped away, knowing that you've received the, and the joy of receiving the forgiveness of sins because of the merits of the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. And this country, as a nation, and around the world, the nations of the world, the only way the peace can come to this world is not through the United Nations, or any other kind of human institution, but, but through what God has given to us, the gospel. 
That is going to change the world. One day, Jesus will come back with his bride, the church, at the second advent of Christ and the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, at the times of the Gentiles. At that time, it'll destroy Antichrist and the false prophet who will be leading the world into rebellion against Jesus Christ. He will destroy the tribulational armies. And he will also uh, imprison Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. He will remove every unregenerate Gentile and Jew from the face of the earth at that time. The millennium will start with just believers. In contrast to the 70th week of Daniel, which will start with nobody, no believers. So, peace will come to the world at that time, the millennial reign of Christ. And the subject of the gospel himself, Jesus Christ, will reign over this earth as king of the earth, and there will be peace, finally, for the human race. And so, the first step to that accomplishment in the future is peace in the soul of human beings, Jew and Gentile, through faith in Jesus Christ. So, as a Christian, we need to experience that peace on a daily basis because we're in the devil's world. So we need to appropriate by faith. That means to take possession by faith. The power to overcome sin and Satan's cosmic system. By considering ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God, we will experience the peace of God and we'll experience the power of God in our lives. Despite the trials and tribulations, we'll learn what Paul learned. And in Philippians, I've learned to be content and Good times, bad times, adversity, prosperity. When I'm hungry, when I'm full, uh, when I uh, when I'm uh, have no clo- uh, when I have no place to lay my head, or when I do have a nice place to lay my head. So he knew he knew that experience to experience, and he could have that joy and that peace, despite the trials and tribulations that he endured. Remember in Acts 16, he was arrested unjustly and imprisoned. And Philippi, Acts 16. And who was Sylvanus with him, Silas? And they were in shackles. And he was a Roman citizen. What they did to him was they could be put to death for doing that to him, Roman citizen like Paul. But they were singing hymns. They were rejoicing because they, because they knew that this was a great honor and they'd be rewarded for this. And so they were taking advantage of the opportunity to bring glory to God when adversity struck, the world couldn't understand that. But it made a huge impact on the Philippian jailer. That and the earthquake that came, that followed. And they became believers in Philippi because of the testimony of these two men who were had the courage to, and they got the courage from their faith. And that courage and that faith led somebody to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, a Gentile. So, uh, my prayer is that this lesson will be a blessing to you all. Thank you for uh, listening and watching. And uh, we'll pick this up, Lord willing, on Thursday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this lesson be a great blessing to you people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.